I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. A year ago, when I moved to town, I got a primer on how to drive the Nashville streets. The biggest and most important part of that lesson, wave when someone lets you merge into traffic. I quickly caught on. So much so that when I let people merge into traffic and they don't wave, I get a little salty. Only like a grain or two. I'm becoming more Nashvillean each day. In all seriousness, there are certain expectations here when it comes to being polite. Where do they come from? And how are they changing? Later this hour, we'll talk about Nashville's nice with a historian, an author, and some native Nashvillians. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. It's always good to be back in the studio. Good to have you back with us. So what's on our listeners' minds this week? Well, a lot of people have been talking about one topic WPLN health reporter Blake Farmer has been following. Blake joined us on Monday to explain why Republican lawmakers want to investigate Vanderbilt University Medical Center's transgender health clinic. Yes, it's because a far-right YouTuber accused the clinic of harming children. That's right. Even though there's no evidence to back up that claim, on Instagram, two of our listeners shared their concerns about the baseless claims against Vanderbilt. Eartha Kitsch, which I love that name. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Eartha Kitsch wrote, quote, that guy is putting out the kind of fear mongering and misinformation that attracts people like that Pizzagate nut. It's very dangerous. Man, Pizzagate. That's something I haven't heard in a while. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a reference to a conspiracy theory from like five years ago back at that top. Democrats were running a child sex trafficking ring out of a D.C. pizza shop. Yeah. Yeah, which was definitely not true. Mm -hmm. But anyways, another Instagram user named Jack chimed in, too. They said, quote, this rhetoric describes trans people and our medical care as mutilation and atrocities. It's so dangerous and harmful to trans people trying to live their lives as happily and peacefully as possible. I mean, I think that's what they're trying to do. Live Mm -hmm. their lives as happily and as peacefully as possible. All right, so what else we got? So yesterday's episode about marching bands was incredibly fun to listen to, mm-hmm. and the TSU aristocrat of bands received plenty of love online. As they should. That album is amazing. Be sure to go out and get it. Yeah. It's fire. Uh, but we did receive a very interesting comment from one listener who simply goes by A okay. on Twitter. Um, they wrote to us asking high school band directors to maybe turn the music down a little bit. Huh. Anyways, they wrote, quote, as someone who lives near Pearl Cone High School, I will be glad when it's over and band practice will hopefully not run until 1130 p.m. each night. That's way too late for children to be doing anything school related. I mean, I don't have any kids, so I never really thought about that. But it does make me very, very grateful that I do not live close to a high school. It reminds me of those ads from back in the day. It's 1130 p.m. Do you know where your sousaphone player is? <laughs> OK, so one thing we know very well is that this is Nashville. It's an hour that goes by really, really quickly. Oh, boy, ain't that the truth? 
So during Tuesday's show about affordable housing, we had a panel of residents talking about what's affordable to them. Before we said goodbye, we asked them what they would like to ask our next guests, Councilmember Berkeley Allen and MDHA board member Dr. Paulette Coleman. Unfortunately, because we had so many to get through with questions and comments from our listeners, we ran out of time to answer their questions in the live show. But... After we went off air, I handed over my host chair to our multimedia producer, Rose Gilbert, to ask those questions of our guests. So our guest, Samantha Tidwell, asked, quote, I know I'm very privileged, but we still struggle, struggle to go on vacation because we struggle to afford the house that we have. How can this be helped? Is there something we can do with taxes or child care? Anyways, here's what Berkeley Allen said. State law says how taxes work, so there's not much leeway there, there is uh, a movement in the in the Metro Council just trying to create other options for childcare to make it less difficult for childcare to be provided. We're working on removing some of the state and and metro um, licensing obstacles that often are totally different and incredibly confusing. That may create more options for neighborhood centered childcare or or smaller church centered childcare, and having more of that, I think, can help with hopefully reducing the cost. That was actually something we touched on in our child care episode. Okay, so another guest from Tuesday, Kier Obana, had this question from our for our officials. He said, quote, it's difficult to go from being poor to being middle class. Will there be more programs for people who fall in between those classes to be able to afford housing without having to move to Antioch or even further out of Nashville? End quote. Here's the council member again. There's an interesting model that um, that the Martha O'Brien Center is shepherding through the process that deals with the, quote, benefits cliff, which is if you are receiving public subsidies, often once you get a better opportunity, then that cuts all your subsidies out from underneath you suddenly so that you actually take a step backwards when you get a raise, which is terrible. And they've they've put together a very sophisticated mathematical model that they will be administering in a, in a multi-county region to support people through that transition from um, having a job that doesn't give you enough to pay your rent to moving up to the next level um, while not drastically losing the, the the food subsidies you may be getting or whatever so that so that it's a net gain every step of the way until you get to the point where you can be self-sufficient. So the last question was from Carolyn Nafee with our place Nashville, who simply asked, can we get more money for affordable housing here in Nashville? Here's what Dr. Coleman and Berkeley Allen said. American Rescue Plan has helped us to get an onslaught of money that we would not have had. And then the challenge will be after that's gone, what do we do and how do we sustain it? We we are being more direct about providing money for affordable housing. When the Barnes Affordable Housing Fund was first created, it had $250,000 in it and we were excited. And now we're putting 15000 a year into it. And I believe that the current federal administration is paying more attention to how housing affects everything else. And there's more money that will come through HUD and through our local housing development agency that could be applied toward long range solutions. I'm happy we had time to get those answers, those answers to those questions from our guests. I know affordable housing is a topic that we'll keep circling back to for sure. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course. And our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us at, on Twitter and Instagram. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick, and it helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about our quirky mannerisms and niceties here in Nashville. What do you think makes up Nashville nice? Whether you're new here or born and raised, we want to hear your thoughts. Bless your heart is a given. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. My mother always told me and my siblings that it's better to be kind than nice. I thought I knew what she meant, but as I grew older, I saw the wisdom in her words. Now I see that being nice sometimes serves as a kind of surface level mask. To be kind is genuine and heartfelt. Now, I've lived in other parts of the country where people are not concerned with being nice or kind. So I had a tiny bit of culture shock when I moved to Nashville. Almost everyone is very nice. I noticed it right away. I also spent a lot of time asking myself if people were being true or as us Gen Xers say, real. For some of the verdict is pending, but I will say that in my experience, Nashville is a very welcoming place. But what is Nashville nice and what does it mean? My next guests are here to help answer that question. Frida Player is a longtime Nashvillian who was also executive director at the nonprofit Emerge Tennessee. And Dr. Carol Busey is the official Davidson County historian. Frida, Dr. Busey, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to thank This you. Is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Yes. So Frida, I'd like to start with you. What does Nashville nice mean to you? Nashville nice is um, Nashville Pacific Southern um, genteelness. Mm -hmm. It's where you come into a town, people will speak to you, um, people will make sure you know your way, do you have a church home, just making sure you're settled in and creating an initial sense of community. And that's what I experienced when I came to 1996, when I came to Fisk University. Um, and then as I kind of stayed here for a while, that was my introduction to Nashville nice. It's this, uh, this Nashville-specific version of the gentle, the Southern genteelness and the Southern hospitalities that you experience anywhere in the Southeast. Describe what it was like for you in 96 when you first encountered it. Um, well, I came from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That's my hometown. And I came here to go to Fisk and I was making sure I got settled in, making sure I had a way to the grocery store, making sure I had things that I needed to set into my dorm. Um, when the holidays came, um, professors made sure I had a place to eat for Thanksgiving or Christmas if I couldn't make it home and save my classmates. Um, so that's really more than national nights. Make sure you had a home. Um, I had suggested churches. So I went to church I went to at the time. They made sure I had a place to stay. They fed me on Sundays um, mm -hmm. after church. Mm -hmm. So especially as a college kid and being broke, <laughs> that good home meal always kind of filled my belly and my heart and my soul. And so that was really the Nashville nice, knowing that you had some place to eat, some place to take care of um, if you really needed a ride. And then also checking in with my family, um, people who met my parents when they came and dropped me off from school, they would ask. You know, how's your family doing? How's your dad? How's your mom? And in a genuine way, they actually remember who they are and really inquired about their well-being mm -hmm. that I wouldn't find in my hometown in Pennsylvania unless they had a relationship with my parents. Now, Dr. Busey, how about you? When did you hear Nashville Nice? And what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that? The first thing that comes to mind when you speak about Nashville Nice is that there is this level of kindness and graciousness about Nashville that I think Nashville is very proud of. Very early on, the business community here 
uh, really before 1900 began what we refer to as boosterism, out trying to sell the city to other cities. And so, of course, Nashville's location played some part in this. We were not part of the Deep South, and pretty much the Nashville establishment wanted people to know we were different from the Deep South states. And so it was this this feeling of this is a unique place. It's Southern, yes, but it's not that Southern. And yet you see that if you start peeling off the layers, the layers of niceness and gentility, it goes back, the history goes back to some darker things in our history. Mm. It was a code of sorts of how people, uh, but a particularly people who had formerly been enslaved or were free blacks even before the Civil War, and Nashville did have a substantial population of free blacks here, they learned this code of how they had to act. And and certainly lower class whites were were also put into this category of needing to know this code, but yet they seem to see themselves as a step up above the f- people who had formerly been enslaved. And so what you see here in Nashville is, is yes, we had some water fountains, a lot of water fountains, in fact, that had whites and colored on them. The same was true of restrooms in public buildings. In some public buildings, such as the courthouse, which used to be the center of both the city government and the county government before Metro, uh, you, you had people going to whichever bathroom had to be the closest to their office. And so those codes weren't rigidly in Enforced, but then some were, and African Americans had had really realized what the limits were, and so it was really a shock to the city of Nashville in 1957 when the first public schools in Nashville were going to be integrated that September that a bomb went off at Hattie Cotton School, where where several African-American children had been enrolled. And I think that was, in some ways, Nashville's wake-up call. Mayor Ben West really, really was stunned by this happening in his city. Mm. And so you've got to look at all the dynamics of this. Yes, Nashville is a place that is very friendly. You get on the elevator. And one of the things you notice about New York, Nashville versus New York, where Tracy has lived, is that uh, people don't make eye contact when you walk down the street. And here in Nashville, people make eye contact when, when they're walking down the street. And, you know, if somebody stops you in the parking garage at the, the library there and they're trying to get to some building and it's clear they got out of a car from a different state, if they come up to you and say, can you tell me where XYZ is, the Ryman Auditorium, you feel very comfortable striking up a conversation with them. And it's it's true. The questions are, where are you from? You get in the elevator, where are you from? And it will get down to... What question would you say, Frida? Question three or five of, and where do you go to church? Church, <laughs> church home. Yep. Church, church home. home. Now, I have yet to be asked about my church 
home. But I also was told that when you're crossing the street, you make eye contact with the driver. That's but I don't know if that's polite or more for safety reasons as a pedestrian. Now, now, Frida, Dr. Busey mentioned our city's history with racial segregation. So how are the rules of Nashville nice? How do they kind of play into that? How are they different between black and white spaces? Um, one place I would say, particularly I, by profession, I'm a political consultant. And so what I really see it in the activist community, in the political community, um, is that in the black political community, you really have to go and have conversations with the political elders or the political leaders when you want to get involved, when you want to run for office. Um, and that's one way it's different that you really have to go and kind of, I call it, do the political tour mm. and really kind of either get their blessing or let them know that you're running. That's a whole different kind of political conversation. But I think that's really different in the black community of really um, paying homage, paying respect to those who um, blaze a political trail, particularly in the segregated South when metro government formed um, and the traditional black historic seats that are councilmatic seats that that exist. Um, I think that was really a difference compared in the white community. Usually in, in the political realm, it's more of you have that one gatekeeper that would just open up and verify and give you that credential to go through the political sphere. And I think that's more the difference of how the community works between the two. I want to bring in my next guest. She's an entrepreneur, business mentor, and native Nashvilleian, Tracy Hughes-Royal. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a fifth-generation Nashvilleian. How would you define Nashville nice? I Well, I look at it from the business perspective. And growing up here in Nashville, being born in Nashville, but also living in New York for 18 years, I can go do a direct comparison. For example, as Dr. Busey mentioned, there's a difference between looking a person in the eye versus not looking them in the eye. In New York, people are busy and they have somewhere to go. So they're not being rude. They're being direct and they're trying to get to where they're going. Here in Nashville, in terms of Nashville Nice, we like to strike up a conversation, get to know you, especially if we were looking to do business, not coming in and striking an immediate business deal. They may want to do happy hour or have dinner, break bread and understand your family, your values, your background, where'd you come from? What do you like? They will have the social conversation or the social graces before they even move into a business realm. So I've really been operating from the Nashville nice in terms of how you do business. You can't come here and expect to have an immediate deal and not sit down and have dinner and just talk about each other's families. What are the benefits of that? I mean, I understand that to be successful in business, it's about building those relationships, but Talk about the business benefits um, or detriments of the New York style of let's get straight to the point and the Nashville style of, hey, let's have these social graces. Let's learn a little bit more about the person you'll potentially be doing business with. As a publicist, I have a PR company here and I um, did PR in New York. I can tell you exact, um, show you a direct comparison. So in New York, you are calling the assignment desk at the news station and you are pitching your story and hoping they will run it. They're very short. They're very to the point. Just tell me what it is. And then they hang up. And you may not know that your story was picked up here in Nashville. You can call an assignment desk or call a producer. They will take time to chat with you, hmm. learn a little bit about your story. Not only if they run the story, they will actually send you a link or show you where the story ran. So they are they're into the relationship where there's a slight investment of time. 
I like that. Now, you know, speaking of breaking bread, we got a tweet from at thisisnashville.org from at DixieGirl256 says, being Nashville nice is bringing food when there's a death in the family. Usually your signature dish, a casserole or a pie, typically cheese, um, you know, chess, typically chess, pardon me. And, you know, you, you never... Chess pie. You, chess yes, pie. get it right now. Get That's it right. That's my favorite I, I dessert. Have, yes, I haven't Dixie had girl. it yet. Chess pie. Oh, you're okay. missing yes. something oh. big. Okay, I am. Okay, Nashville Nice, thank you for putting me onto that. I'm going to get some chess pie. And you pie. can find a chess pie in a local grocery store in the bakery department. And it's worth the treat. Okay. Or at a meet in three. All right. And a meet yes. in three for sure. <laughs> uh, definitely. We had a show about meet in threes not too long ago. I'm going to go down to Arnold's and get me some. Now, uh, she finishes the tweet by asking, you know, and you never visit someone's home without bringing something, even if it's just a six pack. Frida, does that ring true? Yes. <laughs> you always have, um, I have a stash of hostess gifts in my house, whether it's, you know, little uh, smell goods or soap or something. Yeah, you, you have to bring something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, a, I, I had a surgery a couple of weeks ago and I got overwhelmed of, you know, pe- my generation, Gen X, we don't bring dishes as much as in, I'm going to order you Uber Eats mm-hmm. or I'm going to do it. So I got Venmoed, <laughs> um, you know, $20, $50 to order a meal or people just, you know, had um, Uber Eats just drop me off a meal after my surgery. And I got overwhelmed where I had to tell people, can we postpone this a couple of days? Because <laughs> I have too many leftovers um, for that. And that's, and I would say that is very true that um, whether you have illness, whether you have surgery, whether there's a funeral in the family, yes, you will have plenty of food to go that you might even have to freeze it or share with your neighbors. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the idea of so-called Nashville nice. We want to hear from you. If you're new, what social niceties have surprised you? If you're from here, what stands out to you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville, and look, there are no wrong answers. So, you know, how about the other side of this, Frida? Like, is there a way that an outsider might not understand that someone in Nashville is just being nice. I'm thinking of something I've heard described as the Nashville no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the very basic of it, as, as someone who's done community organizing and who's done canvassing for political campaigns, if someone says, I might come, I'll think about it, I may be, that is a no. But they're not going to tell you because going back, um, it was about, you know, they want to respect your time and your effort. And so that's part of the gentility. So when I would come back and we have our debriefs. It's like, well, I got these maybe, so they're going to come. I was like, do they say maybe or think? They're like, yes. I'm like, they're not coming. Okay. And that's part of the national nice. Like, we're never going to say, no, I can't make it. I have an obligation. We're just like, well, I'll think about it. I'll try. The other part of that is it does have a kind of a negative connotation where you see in the political world and kind of like we were talking about in the business world, it's more of we're going to let you go so far. Um, and that uh, what I, I've run into my other elected official colleagues is that why doesn't this happen in Nashville? I was like, well, this is Nashville. That's how we do it, mm. that you have to respect the political culture or they felt like you haven't paid your dues. And so the elected officials who are transplant, but in the last decade, they run against this brick wall of I want to do this. I want to accomplish this. And I was like, whoa, hold up. You have to pay your dues. You have to go do the tour. You have to kiss the ring because when it goes back to that social graces and the same thing in the political world, you have to have the dinners, you have to have the cocktails because it's more of, are we going to the same vision? 
And also, are you dismantling what I've worked for that you don't know about? And I tell people just because you see it, don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay. And I think that's a little bit the aspect of they're going to be nice. So let's talk about it. And then all of a sudden you get freezed out and no one's returning your calls or they're postponing your calls just because that um, you're running against you're running against that brick wall. of You're not going to dismantle what I'm doing or what I'm trying to accomplish. But I'm not going to cut you off like you would in the Northeast and say, nope, you're interfering with my political agenda. And I'm going to stop you right now. Dr. Busey, you want to weigh in? Well, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there are there are definitely limits and things that you you shouldn't do. Nashville does not want to be seen as an unpleasant place. There is a level of pleasantness everywhere and uh, if we don't we're often not direct. We we say, "Well, I'll think about it when you know you don't want to go to that mm. or whatever it is, uh, I'll think about it," which is really code for no. And another thing you see here is and my daughter grew up here in Nashville and now lives in Sweden. So she and her husband and three kids were here for five weeks this summer. And Ellen was struck by all of the people in the grocery store saying to her, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. And, you know, she she couldn't get over that. And her little children who were bilingual, they were stunned at anybody saying, yes, ma'am. And certainly in the North, in New York, for example, you don't have the server say, well, yes, ma'am. And uh, so it's an interesting thing. But there are these, these gentle things you have to do uh, to be really a part of the, to feel a part of the community. Nice. Yeah, don't, mm-hmm. when, like, when your elder says, like, if you don't hear what they say, you never say what. You always say, ma'am, sir. Mm-hmm. They hear the repeat what they're saying. It's like little things like that. It's also like a trigger of knowing whether you're from Nashville or not. And I remember just being the cousin that always came down south for the summer. I always had to learn that code switch of, mm. oh, you never say to an elder, what? I didn't hear you. No, he's like, ma'am. And then you keep, and then they repeat and keep on going. That, that's funny because my mother raised me with that ethic, but she's a New Yorker. Dad's from upstate New Jersey. So it's interesting of how maybe, but their parents are from the South. So they pass that along the family line. Now, Tracy, you work with politicians as well, right? I teach social media media classes to Tennessee politicians. Uh, UT County, Tennessee, they retain my firm to teach them. So I actually taught a class this past Tuesday to some newly elected officials from Sumner County, Montgomery County, Williamson County, Davidson County. How are they reacting to the codes of conduct about niceness in Nashville? I will say, well, the way I teach, it makes media easy to understand and, and accessible. So we don't really go into the codes of the Nashville nice, but I will say what we do do is look for commonalities. So for example, whatever your platform may have been, how can you integrate that into your brand? Because essentially you are offering a promise of service in that position. And how do you leverage that in terms of your posts and your media? And incorporating that is also falling into how do you create relationships? How do you connect with your constituents? Even those who may not have voted for you, how do they feel as though you're there to serve all? So that's the way I approach it, where it's totally, you know, nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but it incorporates the um, congenial elements within Tennessee, because this is just outside of Nashville. So within Tennessee, okay. you're still 
playing the game. You still need to find a way to communicate effectively. Okay, now, Dr. Busey, you mentioned a little bit of this before, but where do you think some of our rules of etiquette and deference come from? Is that a historical link? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a historical link because the first people who settled in the South were generally second and third and fourth sons of uh, nobility. They were the their their father was a duke or an earl, and Big Brother was going to inherit the estate in England. Mm. So these people came over here. All people came to the United States who came willingly. Uh, were coming for what a new world offered, opportunity. And so the English brought with them their expectations of people who were not on their level of society. And so consequently, we had, for a while, we had a lot of indentured uh, servants who came because they couldn't get over here any other way. Uh, but we also then began to bring in enslaved people for, from Africa as the mortality rate here in North America began to go down and enslaved workers tended to become a more secure financial investment. But everyone of that upper echelon expected to be treated with respect and deference and you, you watch some of the programs on public television with the English manor house and the servants and how the servants had to be so careful about what they said to the people for whom they worked. And so that really translated down. And certainly with everyone, there was initially a, a level of fear because you could be beaten severely and and being put in a position where you are always afraid and on your guard that something's going to snap and somebody's going to want to beat you, uh, really, it, it doesn't just last through your lifetime. It lasts through generations and generations and generations. And mm-hmm. it is it is just there in the culture. But certainly the Southerners had much more English influence than did the middle colonies, for example, Pennsylvania and, and New York, that were founded by a whole group of people, all sorts of people from all over the world were there. And then the New England colonies uh, in, in the Northeast were founded for opportunity. Yes, there was a religious component to that opportunity, but they too came for opportunity, and they certainly expected children and women to be uh, submissive to the man of the house. Mm-hmm. So I imagine like the terms my lord, my lady turned into sir and ma'am down here. That's exactly right. All right. Now, we can't have a show about Nashville nights without addressing Bless Your Heart. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy, can you break that down for folks who may not know? Yes. So I'll put on my New Yorker hat. Okay. For bless your heart, bless your heart, if it's used up north, a southerner would be one who uses it because a northerner would basically, they're very direct. And they they don't mean anything about it. They don't mean to be rude. It's just they're trying to get to where they're going and get everything done. If there is something that they perceive to be stupid, they're just going to say that's stupid. They're going to say that's dumb. But as Frida mentioned, we are, we're kind. 
we don't want to be perceived as being mean or rude. So we have bless your heart. So if somebody says something that is perceived as that doesn't make a bit of sense, that is stupid, we will say, well, bless his heart. Bless your heart. Mm-hmm. And it is up to you if you understand what we're trying to say, because we're like, that was really dumb what you said, but I'm not going to hurt your feeling by saying it. So I'm just going to say, bless your heart. And if you don't understand it, but people around us understand it, they will start snickering because they totally get that. Basically, you gave them a little bit of Southern shade. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right. Where does it come from, Dr. Busey? Well, I think it comes from the religious tradition that developed here in the South. And, you know, it's an interesting time in which we live in that church attendance is is going down considerably in this country. And yet people were very religious in the beginning. And I think it came out of, it had religious roots, but, you know, somebody says to you, well, I was unable to find uh, the campus of American Baptist Bible College. And you'll say, well, bless your heart. Let me give you directions. Mm. And so it's it's that kind of thing that it is uh, exactly as Tracy said. Well, you don't know. I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's different connotations and different levels of part of it. Because part would be like, oh, bless your heart. Like, oh, you're special. Like, oh, bless your heart. Like, girl, you need prayer. Like, it's, there's okay. different levels of it, too, on the tone and the connotation that it happens that I think once you live in the South, you understand a degree of, oh, that was stupid or, ooh, we, you need to spend some time, like, as in, like, I'm going to show you the right way. You know, I saw a meme one time. It says there was a cookie that says um, when a Southern lady says I'm not in charge here it was code for saying they're doing it wrong. And that's part of it is like, oh, they don't they're not part of following protocol or they're not being respectful. And so there's little tones and connotations that you pick up that has a little inflections where just like Tracy said, we all know what you're saying, but they may not. Uh, Right. So, for example, I want to make one point about about the African-American community here in Nashville. I mean, they still have really good manners. You know, they refer to each other as Mr. and Mrs., and they don't call each other by their first names unless they're very good friends. And they have a a great deal of uh, communication uh, that is very, very genteel and gracious. And so, for example, you go on the campuses here of our historically black colleges, and you'll see the manners of the students so much better Mm -hmm. than at colleges, state and private, uh, uh, that are not uh, uh, historically black institutions. And there's a huge difference. You go on the campus of Fisk and you immediately see how the students are dressed, they are dressed for respect. Mm-hmm. And, and in recent years, you've even seen teachers dressing down. I, I know what that's all about. Look, at my house, you were straightened out if you didn't address people the correct way. I want to thank you all for this fantastic conversation. We had fifth-generation Nashvilleian Tracy Hughes-Royal. She was joined by Frida Player, Frida Player and Davidson County historian Carol Busey. Thanks so much to you all. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. A great pleasure. 
We have to take a really short break. When we come back, we'll explore the downside of nice, how the code of nice can be inauthentic and bring harm to oneself and others. Have you run into the flip side of Nashville nice? Tweet us about it at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's just my opinion, but I think most people want to be known as nice, as being nice. It's a good characteristic to have, but forcing yourself to be nice all the time may not feel sustainable. And forcing others to be nice, even if they have legitimate complaints, has the potential to grow into something a little more problematic, maybe even dangerous. Prioritizing niceness can lead to suppression of dissent and false narratives that prioritize the ideal harmony over the messy truth. My next guests have look at, looked at Nashville Nice and learned about its potential downsides. Valley Forrester is a fourth-generation Nashvillean and actress. She is joined by Benjamin Houston, the author of The Nashville Way, Racial Etiquette and the Struggle for Social Justice in a Southern City. Valley, Ben, Thanks so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Now, Delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, Valley, your family has been in Nashville for some time now. Before the break, we were talking about the concept of Nashville nice. Did, did that resonate with you? Is there anything that you'd like to add? Yeah, I, it did resonate totally with me, um, especially bless your heart, because it does have thousands of meanings. Um, but the thing that most specifically sticks out to me is that I teach um, the Meisner technique of acting. And my mentor, who was from New York City, um, told me that the greatest challenge in teaching Meisner in Nashville was getting past the veil of nice. Mm. Because the technique requires actors to have access to their authentic emotions and their, uh, and their instincts and we were raised here to put being nice before being truthful, um, to put being nice before our real feelings. And so asking people in an acting class to go for their real feelings is really tough if they were born and raised here. How does that interrupt what the actor's main job is to do, which is to express emotions? That's exactly, that's the problem. It takes a long time to get people to just simply be truthful mm. um, because being truthful reads as rude. Mm. And the opposite of nice is rude or offensive or unpleasant things we would never want to be. Now, have you seen the definition of Nashville nice change over the course of your life here? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I see it in my classroom now because in my in my studio at Actors Bridge, I get students who are born and raised here, but also folks who have more recently moved here. And I think the effect that they are having on the native Nashvillian to, um, to become more direct and and see the benefits in it. Now, Ben, you wrote the book, The Nashville Way. So what is The Nashville Way? 
Well, it's a, a, a sort of stock phrase that alludes to the boosterism that uh, was mentioned early among the Nashville elite that was a way of trumpeting the virtues of the city, um, both to prospective businesses, but also to residents within to try and inculcate a sort of shared value within the city. Um, and I think everybody's uh, testimony has suggested that this this is powerfully true on a social level for folks. Um, with Nashville's history, the problem is, is that it rests rather uneasily with the fact that um, it's, it's built on a lot of mythology that Nashville likes to construct about itself and its history. <laughs> and I think that has to be part of the conversation about how this works. Well, how, how, how did that that fabrication of the history. How did that play out during the civil rights movement and desegregation? Well, it connects to um, this attitude of racial etiquette, um, which governed um, Southern attitudes more generally, but but Nashville certainly um, liked to profess in no uncertain terms. Um, there was a there. There's a way in which um, if you if you are sharing a particular value, then it enables you to stifle the dissension that actually might exist under within a community, right? And actually Nashville is a rich uh, ecosystem of different classes and races and, and all sorts of different social markers and manners or shared values such as niceness end up becoming sort of a social lubricant where people can sort of navigate these tensions more or less smoothly. But when the emphasis is on being nice as opposed to becoming more just or more equitable, uh, then that can be a problem. How does that narrative, how does that prevent the city from becoming from coming to real terms with its history? Well, I think it goes back to to the mythology, right? The, the fact that that Nashville always wants to believe in the better angels of its nature, basically. And you can see throughout its history, it's constructed Parthenons. It's called itself Athens of the South, and it's called itself Nice, and it's called itself, um, you know, it's given itself all these appellations, these boosteristic appellations in order to present this image. Um, but when you peel those back, when you have a, a close look at the history of race relations or labor relations or choose your subject, you actually see that the the discord and the conflict within is actually much more of a compelling and richer story than what people profess to believe. Now, Valerie, you were raised in the church, right? I was. How did niceness factor into your upbringing? Well, when I was growing up, uh, Nashville was veiled in a, um, a strong dose of the prosperity gospel, mm. uh, which means that if, if God favors you, you are successful. And if you are not successful, God is punishing you for your sinful ways. Mm. So uh, if things are going well in your life, God is smiling on you. And if they are not going well, then you're being punished for your sins. That leads people to present only what is nice, only what is cleaned up and shiny and shows God's favor, and to hide what is real and what is true and what is heartbreaking because 
um, it might lead others to believe that they are not in God's favor. Were those expectations set for everyone? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. I think, I think, you know, probably more so for women, um, but I think for everyone. Now, as we're talking about these niceties that were expected to come from the church community, I understand that adhering to that ideal did a lot of damage when you were in college. If you feel comfortable sharing, can you tell me what happened? Yes. Um, when I was a junior in college, I, um, I was kidnapped and raped. And I, uh, the man approached me at the BP station at 8th and Wedgwood at where I was getting gas. And he asked me if I could help him jumpstart his car. And to my 22-year-old self, it did not occur to me to say no. I was raised to be a good Samaritan, um, and I was raised to be nice. And so I said, yes, as soon as I finish pumping gas, I can help. And uh, then I got in my car, and he came around to get in the passenger side. And I had this little moment where my gut said, this isn't good. and But I overrode it because for me not to let him into my car to make him walk while I drove would not have been nice. Mm. And so I reached over and unlocked the door and let him into my car. Um, and he proceeded to pull a knife on me and, and uh, kidnap me and, and rape me. And uh, then I didn't tell the story. I, I did prosecute him and he did go to prison for a very long time. But I did not tell anyone that story publicly because it would show that God did not show favor on me that I was a sinner and deserved it. What helped you find the help you needed then? One of the big things was um, I, I was going to church at St. Augustine's Chapel where Becca Stevens was the minister. Uh, Becca had also experienced sexual violence that she, she talks about very openly. Um, she helped me a lot uh, to reframe the story where I was not the victim of it, but the hero of the story. And and to really smile on that 22-year-old girl who had such a tender heart that she didn't think twice about helping somebody in need. Um, and to put the responsibility on, for the attack on the perpetrator and not on me. Um, that took 10 years to get to. But the first time I spoke of it publicly was... Um, in the vagina monologues that I was producing and directing at Langford Auditorium in front of 1,200 people. And I really thought that I was going to die. I mean, mm. not I. my friends had to carry me onto the stage so that I could own that story publicly. And how did uh, you feel after you were done? Free. Mm -hmm. Immediately. Free. And... Uh, the whole place rose to their feet, and I was reconstituted in that moment. So considering what you've been through and, and how you've grown, what would you like to share with us about, you know, the convenience of being nice versus the authenticity of kindness, particularly to oneself? I would say I run a, a program for teenage girls in the summertime called Act Like a Girl. And what I see in them is this craving for something that is real, 
and this craving for uh, somebody to tell them what's really going on. And I believe that the richness of authentic connection is so much better than niceness. And that if we want to be connected to each other, that means being vulnerable enough to tell the truth about how we feel and what we see in front of us. And that also allows us to trust our instincts, something I know I was not raised to do. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Now, Ben, you know, we, we see all this. How can Nashville you know, learn from its past and be more authentic with itself as more and more people are moving into this town? Well, I think that it it requires um, harder conversations that niceness may or may not be prepared to um, facilitate at the end of the day. Um, as you say, everybody wants to be nice. It's important. It, it matters um, in terms of this social lubricant. But when the conversation is about tension or authenticity or all these things that are coming out, then a different rhetorical strategy might be appropriate. And of course, my book is about the history of race relations there, where um, all the things that have been talked about on a social level in this program were embodied in a city's personality. And in fact, it meant that less change happens rather than more because there was such an emphasis on Nashville feeling good about itself that that became more important than extending the the blessings of Nashville to everybody who is in that community and so it 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 comes back to how you define a community can you be not nice not a Nashvillean and yet still be a part of the city um, and, and I think that requires um, a, a more expansive view about how to approach such things. About 20 seconds. Do you see Nashville's sense of niceness changing? Um, I think there's always the potential there, but uh, it has to be a collective endeavor. It has to be people challenging themselves and challenging each other. And you can do that in a nice way. Uh, and you can do it in an unnice way. Um, but uh, bless their heart, people have to be willing to change. That is Benjamin Houston, senior lecturer at Newcastle University and the author of The Nashville Way, Racial Etiquette and the Struggle for Social Justice in a Southern City. He was joined by the brave Valley Forrester, fourth generation Nashvillian and acting instructor. Thanks to you both for being with us today. Really, truly appreciate it all. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, once you learn to ride, you'll never forget. We'll explore bicycles and biking culture in our town. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Karen Hayes and Betsy Phillips. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. I'm getting chess pie. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>